This morning I want to have one point, and it's this. Everyone trusts and worships something. Make certain that it is the living God. Everyone worships and trusts something. Make certain that it is the living God. Before we jump into our text this morning, just a quick question. What do you worship and what do you trust? See, we, we live in, an, in a time where we don't live in Israel's time, where there are temples in our country filling every place with statues that people come down and worship. We don't live in a place where, where gods of silver and gold dominate the religions of our land. But we have idols that fill our country and our hearts nonetheless. Things that we set up as false gods in our lives and in our culture. And the question becomes, what are those idols in your life? What is it that you are trusting and worshiping? I want to read a quick poem. You can find it on the Gospel Coalition. It's titled, Hello, I'm an Idol. I found this poem to be convicting and also diagnostic as I examine my own life to see what I'm worshiping and what I'm trusting. Here's the poem. Hello, I'm an idol. Don't be afraid, it's just me. I notice you're turned off by my name, idol. It's okay, I get that a lot. Allow me to rename myself. I'm your family. The people who accept you, your career, your self-image, your ideal spouse, your law-keeping and good deeds. I'm whatever you want me to be. I'm what you think about when you lay your head on the pillow. I'm where you turn when you need comfort. I'm what your future cannot live without. When you lose me, you're nothing. When you have me, you're the center of existence. You look up to those who have me and down on those who don't. You're controlled by those who offer me and furious at those who keep you from me. When I make suggestions, you're compelled. When you cannot gratify me, I consume you. No, I cannot see you, hear you, or speak back to you. But that's what you like about me. No, I'm never quite what you think I am, but that's what keeps you coming back. And no, I don't love you. But I'm there for you whenever you need me. What am I? I think you know by now. You tell me. Some of the things we hear in that poem diagnose what idols are. They're the things that consume us, that we have to have. The things that we trust in and worship. The things that we're gratified by that aren't God. And as we're going to find in our text, we have two options. Either we trust and worship the living and true God or something else. We're going to look at three things in our text today in verses 1 through 5. We're going to see that you have a God. 
you have a God. In verse 8 through 11, we're going to see that you, your God is what you trust. And then in verses 12 to 18, we're going to see that your God is what you worship. You have a God, your God is what you trust, and your God is what you worship. Now, we don't know a whole lot about the setting that this psalm takes place in. There's no uh, direct comments about the historical setting, but we can tell from some of the clues in this text that Israel is surrounded by a pagan nation with multiple idols. They're tempted to trust these idols and worship these idols. And there's some sort of situation in which the nations could either mock or boast in defeating Israel if God does not help them. There, there's some sort of situation, if God doesn't come to the aid of his people, that the nations will say, your God said he's faithful, and he isn't. Your God said he loves you. He isn't loving you. Your God said he's with you. Where is he? So there's some situation that Israel is in danger, in need, and God is their only hope, their only help. So with that said, let's look at our first seven verses. You have a God. Subpoint under that. First subpoint, verses one through three. You have a God, big G. We're going to see in our first three verses something about the true and living God. First, in verses one, two, one through two, we see that there is a living God that is glorious. Love how this psalm starts, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Is the cry of the Christian life, that it should be the cry of every true church, not to us, O Lord, not to us. Notice he repeats it, not to us twice, but to your name give glory. There is a God that sits enthroned in the heavens, that alone is deserving of our worship, of our our glory, of our praise, of our honor. There's a God who sits enthroned in the heavens that has made everything. There's only one God that has made everything. And that God is the living God of the Bible. There's one God who is perfect in holiness, perfect in sovereignty, unrivaled in power. And that is the God that you find from Genesis to Revelation revealed the God of the Bible, the triune God of Scripture, deserving exclusively of unrivaled, unmatched praise from his people. Notice, though, what the psalmist does. He gives us two essential elements of true worship, a right view of our own selves and a right view of God's glory. If we are to truly worship God, we have to not only understand who he is, but also who we are. Notice the psalm starts out with, not to us. Israel, the people of God, the redeemed children, covenant children of God in the Old Testament, their cry corporately is not to us. They have a right view at this moment, at least the psalmist does at this moment, has a right view of the fact that they're unworthy of any praise. Yes, they are redeemed. Yes, they are chosen. Yes, they are precious to God. But they are not the right object of worship. They're not the right object of praise. 
They're not the right object of honor, of being lifted up. Having a right view of our own inability, our own shortcomings, is essential to us exclusively worshiping God. Not to us, O Lord. Everything good in us that is praiseworthy is from God. We're redeemed, not of our own works, but the works of another. We, we have provisions. He's given us gifts and things that we often want to lift up and exalt in, but those came from another. There's one object of true worship, and it is the living God. And it is the concern of the psalmist that he exclusively is praised. He does not want God's reputation tarnished. In verse 1, he continues, For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness, why should the nation say, Where is their God? Here we find there is a situation in which the nations might be able to say, this God, he has made a covenant with you. He's made promises to you. He says he loves you. But this, the psalmist knows that if, if Israel is taken over, the nations might be able to say, he doesn't love you, Israel. Oh, he made promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David. Well, he hasn't kept them to you. Oh, your God says that he dwells in your midst in the temple. He doesn't dwell. Where is he? Where can he be found? And the psalmist wants God to come to their aid, come to help them, not because he just wants them to be safe and secure, but his concern is with the honor and the name and reputation of God. Lord, Lord, come help us in a way that you exclusively get the honor, you exclusively get the praise, and so that your reputation amongst the nations is not tarnished. We find in our first two verses that there is a God that is glorious, who alone is glorious and deserving of glory. The second thing we see, though, in verse 3, <clears throat> is that this true God is sovereign. I love verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. They might ask in verse 2, where is their God? And the psalmist tells us exactly where our God is. He is in this exalted, glorious, high position. He is in the heavens. Our God is in the heavens. We're going to compare our God to their God quite a bit when we get to verse 4. Through seven, but just take a moment to compare our God in verse three to their God. Their gods are in rooms, contained to a single room. Our God fills the heavens. Their gods are in a room. Our God is in the heavens. Our God is where their gods aren't, never were, and never will be. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. This shows us God's sovereignty. Our God does what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, and with whom he wants. If our God wants to create, he speaks, and it is. If our God wants to save, he saves. 
If our God wants to provide, he provides. If he wants a nation to rise, guess what happens? It rises. If he wants a nation to fall, what happens? It falls. If our God wants rain to come, rain will come. If he wants snow to come, it will come. If he wants nothing to come, it comes. If our God wants a star to move across the sky, you'll look up in the night and you'll see a shooting star. Our God is enthroned above and he does everything he pleases. That means nothing that God wants to happen, nothing that God does not want to happen, happens. Whatever he wants to happen, happens. It doesn't say our God is in the heavens and he sometimes gets what he wants. As if there are sometimes rivals to his sovereignty that overtake him. Lord, he really wants to save, but along comes this equally greater power, God, that that thwarts his plan. And, well, I really tried to save, but I couldn't. Or, I really tried to create, but I just got thwarted by the powers of, of the earth. It doesn't happen. Our God has no rivals. He never loses. And he's never threatened because he is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. That is good news to Israel. As the nations surround them, as there are threats that could come and the nations could say, where is their God? Israel is reminded that he is exactly where he has been for all eternity. He is seated and throned above. He is providentially ruling the universe. And if, if, God wills Israel to be taken, which they will be by Babylon. God is still enthroned. He is still sovereign. He is still good. Church, that's good news for us today too. Our God is in the heavens today. and He still does all that he pleases. Our God is still sovereign. Our God is sovereign when disaster strikes our nation our lives, our marriages, our jobs. Our God is sovereign when joys fill our home, our jobs, whatever it is. Our God is sovereign when the church is outwardly doing well and when it's outwardly not doing well. Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. You have a God. And if it it is the God with the big G, the only true living God, you have a God who lives and reigns and is worthy of praise. But secondly, we see here, you have a God, small g, idols. All of us have them. John Calvin said the human heart is an idol-making factory. So these aren't just about the gods of ancient times. This can be true of our own lives. So we have our God who's in the heavens. Now let's compare them to the the idols. Our God, now look at verse 4, their idols. In verse 4, we're going to see that their idols, these false gods, we're going to see the origin and the material they're made with. And I want to compare that with the living God. Their idols are silver and gold. Shiny pieces of metal and stone. That metal and stone came from the earth, but the earth came from God. 
They're the works of human hands. They have a maker. God has no maker. He's eternal. He has no beginning. No one has made him. He has existed forever. He's the maker of all things. He made man who made the idols. Silver and gold may be proper objects of our money, but they make terrible gods. Because verse 5 through 7, we're going to see the impotence or the powerlessness or the lifelessness of the idols. They have mouths. You could walk into an ancient temple and see a golden image that looks like a man maybe and it has a mouth. But guess what that mouth will never do? It will never open. It will never speak. They have mouths, but they do not speak. This chapter compares and contrasts throughout. Notice verse 3, our God does. And then you'll notice in verses 4 through 7, their gods do not. Our God does whatever he wants. Their gods do nothing. They have mouths but do not speak. Their gods will never promise or warn, comfort or command. Their gods don't speak because their gods don't live. But our God, he spoke. He said, let there be light, and there was light. Our God spoke to our forefathers. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God, what? He spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Our God speaks. The true and living God, he speaks. He commands. You hold in your hands the word of God. This is divine speech to us. You'll find real commands. Thou shall and thou shall not. You'll find real promises. I will never leave you nor forsake you. You find real comforts of God's assurance of his love and pardon to his people who repent and believe. You'll find real warnings of, of if you don't repent and believe, this will happen. God speaks. Their gods don't. Our God, their gods have eyes, but they don't see. You could walk into the temple and walk up to the statue that has what looks like eyes and you could go like this and it would be a blank stare, no blinking because they don't see, because they don't live. Our God sees everything. Our God sees the inner thoughts and desires of the heart. Our God sees every visible action. He sees everything that people see and don't see about us. That's good news. Because our God sees everything and can rightly judge. When we're falsely accused by others, our God has seen the truth and will vindicate his people. Our God sees every act of injustice that has ever occurred in the history of mankind. And therefore, he will rightly and justly judge because he has all the facts. Because he sees everything. Their gods, they see nothing. Our God, he sees and judges, and that's good news. Verse 6, they have ears, but they're deaf. They don't 
here. People can crowd into their temples and bow down and cry out and wail to these gods and ask for rain to fall and, and for, for fertility for their animals. And their gods hear nothing. But our God hears the cries of his people. The book of Exodus, what happened? God raised up Moses. Why? Because he heard the cries of his people Israel. The prophets of Baal versus Elijah, they're on Mount Carmel. And what happens? The prophets are cutting themselves and crying out. And what happens? Nothing. Why? Because the one they're crying out to is lifeless. Has ears but can't hear. Elijah cries out, and what happens? Water falls. Fire comes. It's consumed by the water because God hears. He still hears today. He still hears your prayers. He still cares for you. The good news is, unlike the idols, the true and living God hears and cares for his people. Their gods have noses, but they don't smell. Yet the God of Israel... When they offer up, up sacrifices, they arise as a pleasing aroma in the nostrils of God. They have hands. They don't feel. Our God saves by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Their gods have feet, but they do not walk. Our God is said in Genesis 3 to have walked in the midst of the garden. Our God promises in Leviticus 26 verse 12 that he will make his dwelling among his people and walk among them. In Nahum chapter 1 verse 3 it says that the clouds are the dust of his feet. Our God has feet and he walks. They, have, they, they do not make a sound in their throat. You were here three weeks ago. We looked at Psalm 46. Our God utters and his voice melts the nations. Their gods are impotent, lifeless, deaf, blind. They do nothing. Our God sits in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Our God lives, he sees, he hears, he acts. Where will you run for help? To a lifeless, dead, impotent idol? Or to the living, true God? This is good news for us as we compare these two things. But the problem is this. It was the problem of Israel's day and it is a problem in our day. The nations around Israel had idols. They had visible statues. Our God is this. Well, Israel, where's your God? We can't see him. Your temple is empty. What's in it? We don't see any statue of a God. What does he look like? You don't know what he looks like because he's not real is what the nations say. If you don't see, I won't believe. In our day, what do we find? Well, if I can't see... I won't believe. I need proof. I need visible, tangible proof. 
And to that I would say, no, you don't. Because God came into his own creation and visibly manifested himself in the person of Jesus Christ. He physically had eyes that could see. He physically had ears and a nose and a mouth. He physically had hands and feet. People saw him. John chapter 1 says that he made his dwelling amongst and we beheld his glory. And what did man do? He crucified him. It's not that we can't see God. It's that the rebellious heart does not want God. It's that, it's that the rebellious heart does not want a God to serve, but would rather have a God that serves them. The problem is not that God has not made himself visible. Look at creation. We have evidence of a creator. Look at Christ. We have God stepping into creation. Now the problem is that the, the human heart, apart from the work of God's grace, does not want the God of the Bible. Isn't that good news, though, that Christ came in all of these things in verses 4 through 7? He had. He had eyes that could see. He had a mouth that spoke. He spoke to us words of life. He gave us revelation of, of who the Father is and what the gospel is. He saw the hurting and the poor and the lost, and he had compassion on them. He had hands that had nails driven through them, and feet that had nails driven through them, and he had a throat that, that groaned in pain upon the cross. See, our God lives. Christ not only lived, but he lives today. You have a God. It's either going to be big G, real living God, the God, or it's going to be a false God. You have a God, though. As we try to diagnose, though, what are those gods, our second and third point will help us. Our second point is this. Your God is what you trust. Verses 8 through 11. Your God is what you trust. Verse 8, you trust your God, little g. Notice verse 8. Those who make them, that is the idols, become like them. So do all who trust in them. We all trust something. Either it's going to be God or something else. What do you trust? We read in Isaiah chapter 2, about gods made of silver and gold and people trusting them? Do you realize that when you get to Isaiah chapter 6, that Israel has become like those gods? Look at Isaiah chapter 6. If you just turn there really quick. This is when Isaiah has this vision of God and, and he sees God in the temple and the angels are crying out, holy, 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 and, and the whole earth is filled with his glory. And then God says, who's going to go for me? And Isaiah says, here am I. And when God tells him, he says, how long am I supposed to do this? He said, look at, starting in verse 9. Go and say to the people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy, or ears heavy, 
and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. What happened? Israel starts worshiping gods that are blind and deaf. And what happens to Israel? They become spiritually blind and deaf. You and I become what we trust. Israel, they build a golden calf in Exodus 32. They start trusting and worshiping this, this image. And what happens? If you read Exodus 32, two, you'll find that God calls them stiff-necked. He says that they need to be gathered because they've wandered off the path. What about cattle? What are they? They're stiff-necked. They wander. They need to be gathered. We become what we trust. We trust idols. We trust false gods. We'll become spiritually deaf, spiritually blind, spiritually dead, dull to the things of God. What are you trusting in? Well, you can trust in idols. Our day, that might not look like a silver or gold statue. Might look like your investments. I'm safe. I'm secure because I have X amount in my bank account and I have my portfolio is diverse. I'm safe from any kind of economic trouble. I'm trusting in that. Maybe you're trusting in relationships. I have a great relationship with my spouse or my kids or, or I have this person in high places. If anything happens to me, I'll be okay because I have these relationships. I'm trusting them. Maybe you're trusting in the approval of others. Hey, everything might be going crazy, but people like me. I'm liked. I'm approved. I'm well thought of. Maybe your trust is in self. I'm just smart enough. I'm not weak. I'm strong enough to get through this. I don't need others. I don't need God. All I have is myself, and that's all I need. Maybe your trust is in your own religious efforts. Yeah, I know God is gracious and I need Jesus, but I'm going to have to do a bunch of good things to please him. All of these can turn into idols. They can be false trusts. And as we trust in those more and more, time goes on and we become more and more numb to spiritual things. Because we're trusting in something that's not living. And we start to become spiritually blind, spiritually dead. Our prayer life becomes less fervent, less frequent. Scripture becomes something that we do just because we feel like we need to. We don't draw life and joy from it anymore. Coming to corporate worship becomes something that we know we're supposed to do, but there's no delight in it. When these things start happening, it's a good, good indication that there's a false trust in our life because we become like what we worship. If we're becoming spiritually dull, maybe it's because we're trusting something that is not the living God. Your God is what you trust, small g, verse 8. Your God is what you trust, big g, verses 9 through 11. 
Just as there are those who trust in idols, verse 9 through 11, the psalmist reminds us what we are to truly trust. O Israel, trust in the Lord. Why? Because he is our help and shield. That cannot be said of the idols. That can't be said of verses 4 through 7. Because they do nothing. They can't help. They can't deliver. They can't strengthen. God can. Where do you turn for help? Where do you turn to trust? The Lord is the only proper object of our faith, of our reliance, of our trust. He tells Israel, that's the nation corporately. Then he tells the priests, O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Verse 11, he says, you who fear the Lord. Now, there's a lot of debate about what this means. Is this just saying God's people fear the Lord generally? In the New Testament, we find that in the book of Acts, those that are called God-fearers is a reference to those who have converted from being a Gentile to becoming a worshiper of the true Christ. Those who once worshiped pagan gods that now worship the living God. What he's saying here is, whether you're corporate Israel, whether you're a priest, or whether you're a converted Gentile, all of God's people trust the Lord. Because he is our help and our shield. The idols can't hear you. They can't move. But God is the right object of trust. He makes promises And the Bible tells us that it is impossible for God to lie. If he says he'll do it, he will do it. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He has lost no power in the last 2,000 years. His arm is still mighty to save. Our God hears our prayers. We can bring our requests to him. And it says that he cares for us. He'll be our help. He'll be our shield. He is the only thing in life that will never change. And never let us down. Your friends, even though you might have great friends, they may move away. Even though you might have a great family, people die. Even though you have a great job, you could lose it. Even though you have all of these things that you can trust, all of them are unsure, shakable, changeable. Not God. Our God does not change. Therefore, he can be trusted. My dad was in the Navy. He was in Vietnam. First half of his tour he spent on a minesweeper in the Atlantic. And he told me about how uh, in the Atlantic when these great storms would come, you would see a bunch of people getting seasick. Because they would look out and they'd see the, the storm and the ship just going up and down, up and down, up and down, and they'd get seasick. And they learned over time, people had taught them, that what you do is you find an object on the ship that is immovable. It moves with you. Something in the ship, a small, like a nut or something in the, in the boat, and it's immovable. And you focus on that. That's what you look at. The same thing can be true of the storms of life. If you look at the changing things and trust in the changing things of this life, We're going to be a mess. But if we look at God who is immovable, unchangeable, 
Though the storms of life may howl and things may get crazy and, and waves may crash upon us, we have an immovable object that we keep our eyes upon and he stays us through the storm. Trust in the Lord. His promises are sure. His word is true because he does not change. But know this, just as you have a God, you also have a trust. We are all trusting something at all times. It's not a matter of do we trust something, it's a matter of what are we trusting. It's either going to be a proper object of faith, and there's only one, which is the Lord himself, or it will be something that is like sinking sand will be all other things, the things of this world, even good things. We see we have a God. We see that our God is what we trust, what we run to, what we feel we need and depend upon. But third, your God is what you worship. Verses 12 to 18, your God is what you worship. <clears throat> Verse 12 starts out, the Lord has remembered us. That word remembered is really significant in the Old Testament. When you read through the Old Testament and you see the word remembered, it, also, it often has covenant implications. God keeping a promise. God flooded the earth in Genesis 6 and 7 and destroyed everything. Genesis 8, the Lord remembered Noah. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And at the end of Genesis 19, it says, and the Lord remembered Abraham. You will constantly read, and the Lord remembered his promise, and the Lord remembered his promise. Here we have the nation surrounding the people of God, the people crying out, not to us, but to your name give glory. Lord, help us. And then this word that we so easily skim over, the Lord remembered us. He hasn't forgotten his promise to his people. Though all the circumstances of Israel's time right now are saying the Lord has forgotten. Look at the circumstances. Look who surrounded us. Their army's bigger than ours. They have more weapons than we do. The Lord has not forgotten his people. He has remembered. And he will bless us. He'll bless Israel, the house of Israel. He'll bless the priest, the house of Aaron. He'll bless the, the people who have converted from being a pagan. He'll bless. How many people, how many of his people will he bless? All of them, both great and small. Don't think that that has changed today. The Lord still remembers his covenant. The Lord remembers his people. Our names are, are graven on, upon his hands. He will not forget you. You might look around at the circumstances of life and think, the Lord has forgotten. The, the, Lord, the Lord doesn't remember me. Look at my plight. But the truth is that the Lord never forgets his own. As you read in, in your confession, the New Hampshire Confession, he has chosen his people before the foundation of the earth. He has foreknown you before you even were. He's loved you with an everlasting love. He is not going to forget you. And he won't forget you into all eternity. The Lord has remembered us and will bless us. How is he going to bless Israel here? 
Well, they're asking in verse 14, may the Lord give you increase, you and your children. Well, these, this is physical stuff here. Let their families be big. Let their cattle and their, their, their sheep be multiplying. Let their fields be growing. May the Lord bless you who made heaven and earth. Compare that again to the idols who are made by human hands. Not God. He made everything. He made the heavens and earth. Verse 16. The heavens are the Lord's heavens. But the earth he has given to the children of men. How do we know that God loves and wants to bless? He's given the whole earth to us as stewards. Here's our key. You have a God and your God is what you worship. Verse 17 and 18. The dead do not praise the Lord. Nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord. From this time forth and forevermore, praise the Lord. We will bless the Lord. This, this idea of the word bless means to speak well of or to exalt in. We will speak highly. We will lift up the Lord. Now, in this time of trouble for Israel and forevermore. What we worship is what we speak highly of. Most highly of. What we worship is what we exalt in. We find our greatest joy and satisfaction, our contentment and our hope in. What we worship is what we speak most often about. What we spend the most time thinking about. What do you worship? Is it God or is it something else? Here are some, just some diagnostics for how to know what you worship. What do you spend the most time on? What do you spend your money on? What do you love the most? What do you enjoy the most, find the most joy in? If those things, if you fill in that blank with something other than the living God, you have an idol. Now let me be very clear. You can spend money and time and think about and enjoy things in life. That's not a sin. You can have nice things. The problem is when those things become ultimate things. The problem is when those things become our ultimate satisfaction, our ultimate joy, our ultimate delight. When those things supersede our love for God. But... If we see those things, the, the temporal things of this life that we enjoy as blessings that tie us and draw us back up to the giver of those gifts, then they're totally fine to enjoy. But they're not to be the object of our worship. What do you worship? Biblically, our answer must be that God alone is our joy and our delight and our object of praise and worship. We worship God in everything. When we gather corporately, we gather to worship. We gather to exalt God, to lift him up, to know him and to make him known. We, we worship God privately when we open our, our Bibles and read to know him and love him more, to hear from him. We worship when we gather as a family for family worship. 
But we also worship God in how we treat our neighbor. We also worship God in how we work, our work ethics, our integrity in our jobs. We worship God in how we eat and exercise, sleep, spend, and save our money. We worship God in all of life. We are always worshiping. Always. The question is what? Are we worshiping? In this text, we have seen that we have a God. In this text, we've seen that we trust something. And in this text, we see that we worship something. The question is what? Before we conclude, I just have a four things application-wise. Four things. Here's the thing. All of us, every single person in this room, including myself, has to conclude this. There are times, even as believers, we make idols. Throughout the week, every week, you could look at this and compare and say, sometimes I'm worshiping God, and sometimes I'm making idols, false trusts, and false objects of worship. So what do we do in those times? First thing I think is this. Compare all of those objects of worship and trust with the living God. That's what the psalmist does here. He takes God, the living God, and he puts him up compared to the gods of the day. And what happens? All of the gods of the time come up far short. Do that with your idols. Know who God is and compare him. Meditate on his attributes, his faithfulness, his sovereignty, his holiness, his his trustworthiness. And compare that to the things that we set up as false gods. You'll find that they aren't sovereign. You'll find that they aren't holy. You'll find that they don't love you. And that will cool your love for those false gods. And that will warm your heart's affections for the living God. Because you'll see, none compares to him. None is good like he is. So number one, compare your idols to the true and living God. Number two, seek God's help. You and I fight a battle against our hearts that in our own strength we can never win. We do not have the power or ability to change ourselves. We don't have the ability to kill sin in and of ourselves. We need God. We need God to to take our affections and, and warm them for him and make the other things in life less attractive than he is. We need his help to daily kill our idols that choke out our affections for Christ. That looks like daily, regularly pleading for God to help. God, help me. I'm I'm so tempted to trust in money. Or God, I'm so tempted to to set up a perversion of your view of human sexuality. Or God, I'm I'm, I'm tempted to trust in alcohol. Or I'm tempted to to worship uh, people liking me. And Lord, I can't seem to change those things. I need you to help me. I need you to change my heart. Lord, I need you. Number one, compare your idol to the living God. Number two, seek him for help. Number three, be assured of his grace. 
If you have a sensitive conscience here today and you're like, I have idols in my life. Oh no, how could God love me? If you have repented of your sin and you have trusted in, your, in Christ, your acceptance before him does not rest in your performance. It rests in the person and work of Christ who bled and died and absorbed all of God's wrath for all of the idols that you set up. He does not look upon you with delight because you perform well for him. He looks upon you in delight because he sees another's righteousness covering you. And it's the righteousness of his son. That's not an excuse for you to dwell in your idols. But if you struggle with sin like all of us, and you struggle with assurance, and you struggle with how could God love me if, know this. He knew before he made you what you would do. He still loves you because of Christ. Know the grace of God applies to the idols in your life. And let that be the motive that drives you to repent more. Lastly, worship God and trust God alone. If you're here and you would know yourself to have never repented and never to have trusted in Christ, the truth is you're trusting something else. It might be yourself, it might be others, it might be fill in the blank with whatever, but you're trusting in something that will not last. You're trusting in something that will never help you. You're trusting in something and worshiping something. But it must be God. Here's the thing. That's a big deal. That's not, that's not like, oh, I guess I made a mistake. Like That is going to cost people eternity apart from Christ. But the good news is that Jesus did come. God came in the flesh. He came and lived a perfect life under the law. And willingly went to a cross. Willingly took on sinners' sins. Willingly took on God's wrath for their sins. And willingly died in their place. But he rose from the grave and he lives and he offers to any and all who will come to him. He offers forgiveness. He offers life. He offers grace. You must come to him must bow the knee to him and say, no, the things I've worshipped and trusted in are false. They are false trusts, false gods, and you are the only true and living God, and I bow the knee to you and ask for mercy. And if you come in that way, repentant and trusting in Christ and Christ alone, Jesus said, anyone who comes to me, I will never cast out. He'll adopt you as a son or a daughter, and you'll be his forever. That means you must make him your only trust, an object of worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you help us when nothing else in this world can. You help us because you alone are the living God. You alone have ears to hear, eyes to see, hands and feet to move and help. Help us, Father, to kill that which is earthly in us, the idols that we trust in, even the good things that you give us that we set up as the blesser, even though they are blessings. 
Father, let us see you alone as the right object of our joy and delight and contentment. And thank you for Christ who takes idol worshipers like all of us and makes them your children by grace. We thank you for these things and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.